This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. I think that it is a human phenomenon. And until we accept that and acknowledge how common suicidal thinking is, it will just seem like it's something that happens to other people and, and not those close to us or even ourselves. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Daniel Bennett, the editor of BBC Focus magazine. This week, we discuss a topic that's talked about all too little. Suicide is one of our major public health problems. According to a 2014 report from the World Health Organization, someone ends their life every 40 seconds, and suicide kills more people around the world than all the wars and natural disasters combined. In the UK, it's the leading cause of death in men under the age of 45. Jesse Bering is a psychologist and science writer who knows firsthand what it's like to feel suicidal. In his new book, A Very Human Ending, he uses his personal experiences to explore the inner workings of the suicidal mind, looking at the factors that lead someone to take their own life, and how we might be able to help those who are at risk. Before we start, please note that this podcast deals with topics that some people might find distressing. Here's our staff writer, James Lloyd, speaking to Jesse. Okay, so Jesse, your book is called A Very Human Ending. I was wondering, is suicide a uniquely human behaviour or has it been observed in other animals? Well, it's a contentious subject. Um, 
there are some animal behaviorists that would insist that they are convincing cases of animals killing themselves or taking their own lives. Um, I've argued in the book that, uh, in fact, we are the only species that intentionally ends our lives. Um, and if you look very closely at these sort of idiosyncratic anecdotal reports of animals, um, they are interpretable, interpretable by other means. Um, one good example is, uh, for some reason, in the early uh, 20th century, in the American press, there were a lot of reports of an animals um, killing themselves, dogs, um, you know, jumping off cliffs. Uh, there was a uh, there was a story about a, a dog that was um, at a menagerie or a zoo in Central Park and jumped into the hippopotamus tank and um, drowned, or actually I think was killed by the hippopotamus. But the uh, the journalist insisted that um, it when it when it was fin finally sort of fished out of the water, it was clear that it had uh, committed suicide because it was friendless. Um, and was clearly emaciated and just sort of decided that life wasn't worth living. But from my perspective, I mean, it's the more parsimonious explanation is that it was simply very hot and thirsty <laughs> um, and found itself in a real predicament. Uh, the, you know, and, and if you look at our closest living relative, chimpanzees, um, where you would expect to find um, something like suicide if it does appear in other species, um, despite you know, the, the equivalent of hundreds of years of um, ethological field work um, with with chimpanzees by primatologists, there's not a single incident of a chimp climbing to the highest branch it can find and jumping, um, uh, which it would be um, something that you would see only in human. I think that we are the ape that jumps. That was actually the original title of my book. Why did you decide to write a book about suicide? What, what set you off on that journey? I guess a confluence of factors. I mean, for one, I just find it a, it's dark territory, certainly. It's um, a grim, it's grim subject matter, but it's also, it's very fascinating to me um, as a psychologist um, with sort of a philosophical bent, I guess, to my writing. Um, I also have you know, have sort of had fleeting bouts of suicidal feelings throughout my life. They come and they go. Fortunately, I'm not experiencing them. I haven't experienced them in quite a while. But I remember when I experienced them last, um, I, I kind of had this idea in mind to put those feelings in a bottle or somehow capture them because I one day I would like to write a book about suicide. So I tried to sort of imprint that emotional intensity, that, um, that in, incredible depth of sorrow um, and uh, remember what that was like because I wanted to be able to describe it scientifically um, in a book one day. And part, you know, part of my coming out of the, that dark period was my uh, intellectualizing the problem. Um, that was my defense mechanism, being able to sort of keep these dark feelings at arm's length emotionally by analyzing them critically. Um, so over the years, I've, I started reading the literature um, on suicidology and found that quite therapeutic. And I guess I, I wanted to basically um, communicate that to, to others that have um, gone through similar periods in their life. 
So I guess um, every suicide is different in a way, but I was wondering, are there commonalities between them? Are there lots of things that we see cropping up time and time again? I think that there are there are some common denominators. Um, you know, it is it is incredibly difficult to get a handle on the vast array of reasons that somebody would end their life. Um, one expert referred to it as, you know, dizzying in its variety in terms of um, the, the reasons that somebody would end their life. And I think that's true. Um, however, you, you do find some patterns. Some, for instance, when people have a, a very rapid loss of status um, that is oftentimes um, associated with suicidal thinking. So just to give you an example, um, somebody that has been single their entire life um, they're not at a special, especially high risk of suicide. It's the person that has been in a long-term relationship that suddenly finds finds himself alone. Um, that that sort of rapid shift to a new social status, or somebody that has had money and then they lose all of their money, rather than somebody that's been at the poverty line um, their whole life long. So if you're at the if you're at you know basically sort of the bottom of the mountain. Um, you're not really adjusting to that that um, um, that intolerable level, but if you if you fall off of the mountain from the very height, um, then that's where you see real despair. So you find suicide suicides flaring up. Um, for instance, uh, in the first month of um, incarceration, when you're when you're thinking about um, suicide among prison inmates or um, among those that are institutionalized um, uh, in mental hospitals. It's usually that, that sort of month, that first month period where, this, where the person is most at risk um, as they're navigating their new social identity. And is there a kind of genetic component to suicide? Are some people more likely or more at risk of suicide than others, kind of genetically? Surprisingly, yes. Um, there's a there's a reasonably significant concordance rate among identical twins um, when it comes to suicidality, either attempts or actual suicide. Um, it's not um, it's not completely um, equivalent in the sense that it, just because your identical twin kills himself doesn't mean that you are destined to do so as well. But uh, most experts would say that um, there's a vulnerability to suicidology that seems to be heritable and is distinct from other um, other types of mental illness. So even if you control for um, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, um, many of the psychiatric conditions that, that oftentimes are comorbid with suicide, even if you rule those out, um, there's still a heritability component when it comes to suicide. So there does there does seem to be some genetic basis, although it's not entirely clear um, what that is. It could be related to individual differences in impulsivity, or um, aggression, um, or uh, perfectionism. Um, these these are all personality attributes that that contribute to suicidality suicidality as well. And, and those who take their own life, what proportion do you suffer with a mental illness? Is it is it the vast majority, or or is that not the case? Um, I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of people who die by suicide would have some diagnosable mental illness. However, um, 
I'm a little reluctant to embrace that 90% statistic that is very commonly flouted as um, being the case for for suicides that 90% of people who die by suicide um, would have a diagnosable mental illness because um, if you if you isolate those cases and you present you present them to psychiatrists that do not know that that individual died by suicide and they just simply evaluate their psychiatric case history um, it's a far far smaller percentage than 90% in terms of um, what these experts would diagnose as, as, as this individual having a mental illness. So um, I think that 90% um, statistic is a product of psychological autopsies, which is that when people die by suicide, they retroactively sort of look at their their um, symptomology and their, their case history, and they diagnose them after the fact, knowing that they've killed themselves. But if you, if you control for that, um, um, experts are, are, and psychiatrists are far less um, likely to, to identify a mental illness. You also talk about the fact that media coverage of suicide, for example, when uh, a celebrity takes their own life, can actually lead to more suicides. Can you tell me a little bit about this effect, about what causes it, and then about how we should, how we should report suicide in the media? Yeah, it's kind of a paradox that I ran into in writing the book because on the one hand, I wanted to um, communicate the science of suicidology and share findings in this field with readers. Um, but on the other hand, I was always very wary and cognizant of the fact that simply by talking about it um, could potentially put vulnerable individuals at risk by mere exposure. So, um you know, it's a sort of delicate balance, I think, between um, talking about it and talking about it um, responsibly in a way that doesn't make those that are um, significantly at risk more likely to to harm themselves. And I think ultimately at the end, I sort of justified it in the sense of, well, I think it's much more important that we understand the mechanisms and the processes by which we think about suicide and have some meta awareness or meta knowledge of um, the the um, the processes of suicide contagion um, and these sort of these uh, these psychological epidemics and know how our brains work when we are exposed to news of a high profile suicide by a celebrity. So you know Anthony Bourdain or Kate Spade um, had recently been in the news and. Uh, well, what we do know, what we do know, is that suicide contagion is real. Um, we do find um, an increase, an uptick in suicides um, in the weeks surrounding a celebrity's death, um, and you know, journalists, responsible journalists at this stage um, do follow rules that I think, you know, are very, are, you know, they follow ethical rules about how to report suicide um, um, so that they, uh, you know, they don't use sensationalized language. Um, they don't um, show images or depict methods graphically. Um, and they talk about suicide as a, as a health problem. Um, so there are, there are ways to sort of address it, but the the effect is still genuine. 
Um, in terms of why it happens, I have my own suspicions. Um, I think that um, many people implicitly um, w expect people that are sort of in this vulnerable state and highly susceptible to suicide contagion because they're suicidal already might see the sort of um, the accolades and the attention um, and the press and the praise that um, these um, deceased individuals are getting from the public. Um, and there's a there's a part of them, even though they might not might not articulate this explicitly, there's a part of them that expects that somehow they will experience that after their death as well. Um, I mean, I'm a extinctivist or, or extinctivist is somebody who believes that once you're dead, you're dead and that's it psychologically. But I still think that um, it's very difficult to um, to embrace that that sort of uh, that 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 knowledge um, very clearly. I think that a lot of people just simply assume that somehow they will be around to, you know, observe what people are saying about them or their funerals and the memorials that they're getting. Um, and it's, a, it's just simply a cognitive bias that human beings operate with. So I think that's part of, part of the reason that suicide contagion is so, um, virulent that, that, that people, want others to understand their suffering and think that by killing themselves, um, they will finally be understood just like these other people. I was wondering what changes do you think we can make at a more societal level to help prevent suicides? Well, personally, I think that we will be able to save a lot of lives by educating individuals about what it feels like to be suicidal subjectively so that people can recognize when they are in that state themselves um, rather than rely on others being able to detect um, what are oftentimes very, um, very subtle symptoms of this, this altered state of consciousness. I think a lot of people who lapse into suicidal thinking are not even aware themselves that they're at risk of suicide. Um, you know, they don't identify as a suicidal person. And I think this this harkens back to your your earlier comment about mental illness, which is that um, we, you know, it's very easy to simply say that, well, suicides are, you know, we need to really shed light on mental illness and and so on. But I think when we when we use that sort of loaded language about mental illness and suicide, um, it, it almost feels as though somebody with depression or anxiety, for instance, um, Although technically they are mentally ill, they might not they might not identify as a mentally ill person. Um, so when they hear there's a link between mental illness and suicide, they don't necessarily grasp that connection and see themselves as um, being a vulnerable individual. So um, one of the you know one of the things that I found in in writing about this is that the the stages of suicidal thinking that one can find themselves in. Um, People see themselves in these stages and uh, never really realized that they were at risk. Um, and, you know, so, you know, we hear all the time about, you know, stories of people that oh, I never, you know, I never thought that they would actually take their own life or I didn't realize it was quite that bad. And I think, you know, in, in some cases that the person themselves might not have realized it was quite that bad until that last impulsive moment um, when when they were um in that um, 
impoverished state of decision making. So I think educating, this is what I'm trying to do in the book. I'm trying to, I guess, educate readers about what it feels like, that sort of phenomenology or the subjective sense of being a suicidal person and stepping back from it and allowing it to pass. That acute suicidal thinking rarely lasts longer than 24 hours. And if we can just wait long enough for it to pass, um, we can probably get over that, that horrendous hurdle. So in your book, you talk about there being a kind of series of steps almost that people might go through on the way to ending up you know, taking their own life. Um, could you give an example of those steps um, and then sure. explain how, how we go about recognising that? Is it a case of kind of stepping back and having a more objective look at our own mind almost? Right. So when I write about the stages of suicidal thinking, it is um, in reference to the social psychologist Roy Baumeister's model of suicide, what he calls suicide as escape from self. Um, And I guess the best way, first of all, to distinguish his model from other theories of suicide is that he views the primary motivation of people who kill themselves as um, avoiding or shutting down consciousness that consciousness itself is crippling and debilitating and incapacitating. Um, and what somebody who um, uh, takes their own life is doing, in effect, is trying to enter oblivion. And that is contrasted with a lot of more traditional psychoanalytic models of suicide, which would envision it as more of a sort of execution of the self, that you're punishing the self in some way. For, for Baumeister, it's all about escape from the self. And suicide is an extreme manifestation of that. But, um, you know, uh, watching movies is an escape from the self or going for a long run or um, or abusing drugs. It's all about somehow diluting the the piquancy of um, self-awareness, diluting self-awareness. So. So, first of all, that's that's what underlies his stages of suicidal thinking. But um, the first step is that somebody has um, experienced a dramatic setback um, or they failed to live up to their expectations in some way. And this is uh, related to what we talked about earlier in terms of loss of social status, that somehow um, we have experienced a social problem. And typically these are social issues. you know, depression, anxiety, um, uh, and suicidology, sorry, sorry, suicidality is oftentimes a reflective of something that's going wrong in our social lives. But that's the first step somehow is that we have failed to live up to our own expectations. And, you know, whether that's expectations that have been thrust upon us, um, or just our own perfectionism, um, is, um, irrespective of that, it's somehow that, you know, we are disappointing ourselves and we, um, and we also, um, so, 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 uh, I talk in the book about, um, I live in New Zealand now and rugby, uh, rugby is a big sport and there have been some very, um, high profile cases of, uh, people in New Zealand and, and Australia, former all-stars athletes in, 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 in rugby that have found themselves injured or they retire and all of a sudden the spotlight is not on them and they're sort of leading this pedestrian lifestyle now. And it's even though they're 
by all objective measures, they're doing well and they're successful. Um, somehow it's that loss of status um, that they're just a regular person now that is intolerable. Um, yeah, so it goes back to the thing you're saying about the sudden change. It's, it's relative then, really. Yes, absolutely. Um, the second stage is blaming yourself, basically, um, attributing the problem that you're experiencing to your own shortcomings um, or ineptitude or failure. Um, Self-blame, shame, um, these are all um, very powerful and ubiquitous predictors of suicidal thinking. So, um, you know, we all have bad things happen to us, but, you know, if that's all that it would take is bad things happening, then everybody would be suicidal. But what makes, you know, what makes somebody particularly at risk, and this is certainly something that I suffer from, is being shame prone, um, you know, seeing your yourself as some having some sort of inherent flaw that is responsible for the setback that you experienced in that first stage. So that's the second stage. The Stage three is um, an exceptionally high self-awareness. So we find ourselves in this sort of myopically egocentric state where um, we are painfully self-aware. Um, and, you know, this is why, for instance, people would do things like um, um, drink um, to somehow tone down the presence of other minds um, or um, anything anything that would allow them to um, get out of their own head. I remember being uh, you know a suicidal teenager. I talk about this quite extensively in the book. Um, and you know I was coming out of the closet and or I was I was almost being forced out of the closet and I wasn't really prepared to do that. so I found myself sort of panicking state. And I remember um, trying i remember being so self-aware that it hurt um and the only way to get out of my own head was to to read obsessively um and i was you know all these sort of trashy you know novels and just anything basically that would that would serve to replace my own rancid thoughts with somebody else's um uh ruminations um uh, that that was comforting to me um uh, and it makes it makes sense now in retrospect, looking back, that what I was trying to do was to um, to escape from myself. Um, so high self awareness is an, is is something that you'll find um, quite often with suicidal people. The fourth stage in Baumeister's model is what he calls negative affect, and this kind of is self explanatory. That you know when you're suicidal, you have intensely negative. Um, painful emotional experiences. Uh, one of the more heartbreaking case studies that I discuss in the book is a um, is a girl, a 17 year old girl named Vic- Victoria McLeod, who jumped off a 10 story building uh, in 2014. And she, when she did so, um, her parents didn't know she was suicidal at the time. There was, in fact, there was just a note in her pocket that said something like, if I'm found, um, I don't want to be a vegetable, please donate my organs and, you know, and, and my suffering or something like that. She didn't survive the jump, but, but it was only, it was only seven months later that the parents found a diary on her laptop after they got it back from the police, after the inquest was, was completed that, um, 
the diary was basically four months the four months leading up to her death um where pretty much every day she she kept this really um uh intense journal about her suicidal thinking and uh the fact that she was planning this but um you know this this feeling of intense pain suffering negative affect was present um, you can sort of see her, see her slipping into these stages, and that's the way that I discussed it in the book. But she talked, you know, and one, it's just sort of like this, you know, please make this pain stop. Um, and she's, you know, crouching in the shower, and um, you, re- you really get this sort of visceral sense uh, of what she was going through in that moment. So negative affect um, is a is a big part of it. Now, the fifth stage is what Baumeister refers to as cognitive deconstruction. Um, which is basically just what it sounds like. It's very um, strange if you think about it. You know, your experiences are deconstructed, broken down into very concrete um, experiential parts. So um, you'll find things like in suicide notes, you'll find um, typically they're they're not like lofty existential philosophical um in nature they're they're more concrete in the sense of feed the cat pay the bills um you know there's even some evidence of con- of suicide of genuine suicide notes containing more references to concrete objects in the environment like refrigerators and beer cans than um than abstract mental states like you know love and um, um, and honor and things like that. So somehow, um, this being sucked into the suicidal frame of mind leads to more concrete thinking. And Baumeister says that this is basically the, the, the self's attempt to, um, to sort of dial down that negative affect, um, that the individual experiencing to, uh, to sort of concentrate on the things in its imme- things in your immediate environment, concrete problems, not dealing with the past or the future, um, but just what you're facing in the here and now. Uh, but this this also means that uh, people that are in the suicidal state are typically not very good at empathy. Um, so. Because that's that's sort of an abstraction. We we have a difficult time when you're in that state um, thinking about how what our actions will do will will affect others. We're um, we are compromised in our ability to take somebody else's perspective when we are suicidal. So I think that 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 helps a lot of bereaved people to know that um, you know what their loved one did wasn't out of selfish reasons or to hurt them. It was simply that they um, were unable to be empathetic because they were in this altered state of consciousness. And then the final stage uh, and what separates somebody who is just a, um, somebody that's experiencing suicidal ideation from an actual suicide attempt or somebody who goes through with it is disinhibition, um, which is overcoming whatever psychological obstacles that prevent most of us um, from actually ending our lives. So um, Victoria McLeod, who I talked about just a little while ago, who jumped off that 10-story building, discusses rehearsing in her journal. She talks about rehearsing her suicide by standing on top of the building on the roof, looking down and imagining herself falling. Um, There are other examples of people sort of 
you know, strangling themselves to get a sense of what it would feel like to hang. Um, and, and all of that is to, uh, somehow overcome our, our natural instinct to avoid pain and, and death ultimately, um, that, that, that would be the primary obstacle. So, um, Unfortunately, you know, some people do lapse into this final state of disinhibition where they go through with the act that, you know, the agony of living uh, is much more painful than, um, at least in their mind, what it will feel like to die. Mm. And so you think that by educating ourselves around these stages that we can recognize when you know, we're in one of those stages or in either ourselves or, or a loved one and then, you know, hopefully stop people from getting to that last stage. Absolutely. I mean, I think that um, our our best bet is to be able to recognize when we are in these stages ourselves and to understand that we are in typically in an altered state of consciousness um, and to pull out of that or to be able to look at it again from this sort of meta perspective um, and realize that tomorrow will be different. And Would you like to see any changes in the way we talk about suicide? Um, I think that it's. I, I think that talking about suicide uh, as though it's a psychopathology or a mental, you know, it's a product of mental illness. Although I understand the intention is good, I think that it's it's actually um, potentially destructive to those who don't identify as being mentally ill, but nonetheless are at risk of suicide themselves. So, again, that sort of foreign exotic notion of, um, you know, psychiatrically disturbed people killing themselves and everybody else is safe. I think that's inherently problematic. So I, I would like to see, um, the discussion move more toward the fact that we are all potentially, if given the, it sounds strange to say the right circumstances, but certain circumstances, um, at risk of suicide. I think that um, it is a it is a human phenomenon, and until we accept that and acknowledge how common suicidal thinking is, um, it will just seem like it's something that happens to other people and, and not those close to us or even ourselves. Okay, so Jesse, my last question for you is: What do you hope people will take from your book? I think I just want people to have a, a richer appreciation or a deeper understanding for. Um, the intense depths and range of emotional experiences that others are undergoing. You know, when we cross somebody in uh, in the middle of the street, for instance, we seldom uh, think about the fact that inside that person's brain is this in this incredibly endless um, uh, expanse, a cosmos of existence. Um, a universe of thought that uh, that is identical to what we ourselves are experiencing. And I just want people to um, develop a, a greater empathy, I guess, for the fact that we're all just kind of hanging on um, by a thread sometimes. And uh, words and um, social interactions can make a, uh, an enormous difference and sometimes, uh, you know, the difference between life and death. That was Jesse Bering talking about the psychology of suicide. 
His book, A Very Human Ending, is out now. If you've been affected by some of the themes discussed in this podcast, you can find support and information at Samaritans.org. Samaritans is a safe place for anyone to talk about difficult feelings, 24 hours a day. Those in the UK and Ireland can phone free on 116123. The October issue of BBC Focus magazine is out now. And inside, we discover how we could leave Earth for good and build a new civilization in space. We also speak to a panel of leading female scientists about why there are so few women in science. We discover why curry is so good for you and explore whether machine learning could help shed new light on the problem of male suicide. Find out more at sciencefocus.com. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.